All right, welcome to episode 27 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Her name is Emily Kirscher-Morris. She has dual master's degrees in counseling and education. She specializes in working with gifted, high-potential, and 2E students, including those with ADD, ADHD, Asperger's, high-functioning autism, and anxiety. Emily frequently works with clients on emotional intensity, underachievement, depression, perfectionism, social skills, and bullying. She's the founder president of the Gifted Social, sorry, Gifted Support Network, a local nonprofit, and she's the host of the Mind Matters podcast, which can be found on mindmatterspodcast.com. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. You know, when you say all that, it makes me feel very tired. <laughs> I'm like, that's too many things. It's a little long-winded, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe we could have saved some of it for the end. Hey, you know, no, that's okay. It's, I mean, that's kind of my life, though. It's kind of always bouncing around between a bunch of different projects. Kind of like it that way, so. Yeah. And so how did you end up with two master's degrees? So one is in education and the other one is in mental health counseling. Right, yeah. I, well, I started as a teacher. My, my undergrad is in elementary education. Mm-hmm. And so... After I finished up teaching, um, well, I, I taught for a couple of years, but I knew I wanted to do something more and I wanted to get into the field of gifted education. So I went and got my master's in gifted ed. And through that, I knew I, there was just such a need. Um, I live in the St. Louis area and there was really only like one or two other uh, mental health professionals who really had any experience working with gifted individuals. Oh, wow. So um, there was just a real need there. And that was what I, what I really loved about working in gifted ed in general was being able to focus on those social and emotional needs that those that the kids have. And so, um, so it kind of gave me an avenue to do that and a little bit more of a, it's just a deeper way to kind of connect. And I feel like I really get to see the progress that my clients make over, over time. Yeah, that's really cool. So the thing is, like, uh, besides the fact that there was a need for it, what, what kind of like drove you or, or made you interested in working with uh, gifted students? Well, I, you know, so I was, I was a gifted kid and, um, I was, but I was also twice exceptional. And so, um, in case, you know, any of your listener listeners are, um, haven't heard that, you know, that just means basically gifted and having another diagnosis. So I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was a kid, um, at a time when girls especially really weren't diagnosed, um, with ADD or ADHD. And so, um, you know, I had honestly a lot of experiences growing up. I feel like a lot of people are propelled to their professions based on their early life experiences in some way or another. Mm-hmm. And and that was definitely true for me. And so I knew that, you know, it was really hard for me as a student. Um, I had teachers who really didn't understand me. And I was driven to be that person for for my students. I wanted to be the one person who really got got them and understood them and would take the time to help them without just, you know, kind of brushing things off, which is what I felt like happened to me quite often. Yeah. And what are some of those other comorbid diagnoses? Uh, specifically, like for twice exceptional yeah. learners? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, they so, will fall under that umbrella. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it could be a lot of different things. As a matter of fact, I've, I've written a book. It's going to be published next year. Um, Free Spirit Publishing is, is publishing it. Um, mm-hmm. It's about teaching twice exceptional learners. Oh, that's really cool. And, yeah. So, so, you know, we have a lot of different... Um, Category. So, so a lot of times we focus a lot on kind of those neurological diagnoses. So, you know, attention deficit disorder, autism spectrum disorder, um, central auditory processing disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, those are kind of, I think, the ones that we see a lot. But you could also have, you know, your emotional diagnoses, you know, that are more like, you know, your generalized anxiety or your depression. 
um, but as also physical disabilities. So somebody who is um, visually impaired or or is deaf. Um, you know, basically any, um, you know, or a specific learning disability, those educational diagnoses, you know, where, where they have dyslexia or dyscalculia, those are all forms, um, when you couple them with giftedness, can be a type of twice exceptionality. Yeah. And what was it like for you when you were a kid? Like, how did the teachers or the administrators conceptualize your issues? Well, um, you know, I think ultimately my teachers really didn't know what to do with me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was I was one of those kids who I, I it, everything really clicked very quickly for me. But when it came to um, like the daily functioning of what I needed to be able to do at school, I really struggled with that. My first grade teacher, for example, um, we're friends with their family. Actually, she has a, a son who's my brother's age. Uh, and she used to joke and say, well, you know, Emily's work was always correct. We just could never find it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they would, dump, they would dump out my desk, you know, to search through everything. Uh, you know, and so basically what that ended up being, you know, I was, I was very lucky. My mom was uh, a tireless advocate for me. She was a special educator, so she kind of knew what to look for. I would probably have never even been screened for the gifted program if it hadn't been for her because I didn't look like that typical gifted kid, you know, that we're used to seeing. And so, you know, so I I was in the gifted program and then later on I was still really struggling. I, you know, I was almost failed fifth grade actually. And, um, mostly because I just had missing work more than anything, but my teacher was very black and white about it and thought that my gifted education uh, program should be a privilege. It wasn't necessarily, um, you know, if I wasn't doing my work in the class, I shouldn't be allowed to go. Mm -hmm. And I think that ultimately, even as I got older, even the, at least there were some people who understood the gifted side, like especially my gifted ed um, teachers. Mm-hmm. But but when you coupled it with the ADD, um, I, it, it just they just didn't know how to work with that or understand that or help me with that. And so I often felt like I was kind of just. Yeah disconnected or floating through school like it never really clicked and really probably until I was in like my second or third year of college all of a sudden I was like oh I understand the school thing now I know what I'm supposed to do (laughs) but it took me till then to to really figure that out yeah and did you ever have a guidance counselor who at least try to sit down and empathize with you or kind of try to see what was going on with you um you know, I, I had one guidance counselor in my middle school years who I who I like to go and complain to about the mm-hmm. things, but I don't know that she really understood me. She was a good listener, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's interesting. I was I was just um, talking to someone on Twitter, as a matter of fact, and and they were talking about um, kids who have psychosomatic symptoms and and will sometimes go to the nurse. And this is also someone who's a counselor, and so she will go and and you know trade kids mm-hmm. with the, in the nurse's office. And I remember being a kid, part of part of the thing about the ADHD was because I was so disorganized um, and I was always getting in trouble, I had a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so I remember I had this very distinct memory. We had this big staircase in my elementary school to walk up to the nurse's office and um, I would ask to get out of class. I was I was a frequent flyer to the nurse's office, is what they would often say. And I would I would get out of class and I would remember walking up this big stairway holding my breath, hoping that I could raise my temperature enough Mm -hmm. so that when she took my temperature in the nurse's office, I would have a fever and I could go home. I knew I wasn't really sick, Mm -hmm. but I knew I didn't feel well. And I couldn't figure out, you know, it's like, but I was so anxious about that. But unfortunately, I don't even, I don't even remember who my elementary school counselor was. I don't, I don't even know who that, who it was. But, um, you know, I think definitely though, more than anything, there were some teachers who, 
here and there really took a more uh, a, a deeper interest and a deeper connection, you know, and kind of helped me with some of those pieces um, more than my counselors at school. Mm-hmm. And so when were you officially diagnosed with ADHD? Fifth grade, that oh, wow. year that I was really struggling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and you know, it's interesting too. I think part of, part of the other thing that makes me so interested in twice exceptional individuals is that because cognitive giftedness um can help people compensate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so I was diagnosed in fifth grade and I took medication and honestly, I don't really remember if it helped or not. I mean, I assume that it did because I kept continued taking it, Mm -hmm. but I could never really notice a a big change. And um, I think part of that was because I'd already developed so many poor habits, you know, surrounding, um, surrounding some of those, those executive functioning skills, but also, you know, so finally like high school, um, I decided, oh, I don't need the medication anymore. I'm, I'm going to just kind of, you know, do, do it on my own. And my mom was like, okay, what? You know, she kind of threw up her hands. I think my sophomore year, she's like, you're on your own, kid. <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, and so then, so from about the time I was, you know, maybe 16 or 17, really until my early 30s, after my, my well, my son is four. Mm-hmm. And so right after he was born, I questioned whether or not I actually had ADHD. I wasn't really sure, but I was still having all of these issues and I was going through and I was treating anxiety and I was treating depression. And finally I had this, I was like, well, let me just talk to my doctor and I'm going to try some medication for ADHD again. And it was life changing. Um, It, it made all of my anxiety disappear Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I, because most of my anxiety was that I had so many things that I couldn't keep up with, or I had, you know, my mind was always going a million different directions. And so I wish that I hadn't um, waste, I don't know, I didn't waste the time, but I wish I would have known sooner or, or been able to accept that. But there's just that stigma about that diagnosis and, you know, and that you should be able to do all of these things on your own. And sometimes you just can't, and that's okay. And you need either, you know, support from a professional or from friends and family or perhaps medication. And there's no shame in in accessing those. Yeah. That's really good to hear, actually, because um, back to what you said about the stigma of ADHD, a, a lot of people, even myself, um, I I found myself thinking at times like, oh, does a person really need a medication for that? Is that something that maybe you can kind of talk them through and sort of have a conversation and maybe um, teach them some skills? But then what's fascinating is the way that you're framing it is um, you had wished that you had actually gotten that medication earlier. Uh, yeah. because it was it was so life-changing for you and it's really good to hear because I mean um, because of that stigma I'm sure there's plenty of people in our audience who also are aware of that and maybe they're you know yeah. maybe there's a little distance between them trying that option mm-hmm. and maybe mm-hmm. something like this can can help them to yeah. and, and here's what I tell my clients at the office whether whatever the medication is whether they're you know kind of trying to decide if they need medication to manage some, you know, some OCD or depression or, you know, wh- whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. you can try it. And if it, if you don't like it or it doesn't work, you don't have to keep taking right. it. You know, there's, there's, <laughs> there's no yeah. harm in trying it. And, and ultimately, um, I think for ADHD, especially, uh, for a lot of people and especially a lot of kids, sometimes trying that medication is like turning on a light switch mm-hmm. in a dark room. And it just, all of a sudden everything clicks. I'm like, why would you deny that mm-hmm. for somebody, you know, and, and I understand a lot of the, di- I understand what the reasons are that someone would want to avoid that. But at the same time, um, you don't want to discount it 
just at face value without really considering what other options there are too. And what do you think of, um, I don't know if it's like a popular conception, but I think it's at least somewhat, that now we sort of reframe as, a, I guess in terms of kind of the psychological literature, that some psychologists have reframed the notion of ADHD where they say that pretty much it exists in kind of degrees. And that when it's severe, it's debilitating and it obviously kind of interferes with your life in a very significant way. But when it's in a sort of more milder form, that it feels like the person is sort of um, like, let's say two steps ahead of maybe other people, where they're making these different associations that other people can't really just see. So it's not so much about adapting in terms of medication, but it's more so adapting in terms of um, kind of the way they perceive themselves. That It's not that, yes, they are abnormal, but they're not abnormal in a really positive way where they're able to sort of see things and see down the line, whereas maybe others can't. What do you think? Yeah, about that? Well, I think in general, what you're kind of describing is that the understanding within the field of psychology about neurodiversity mm -hmm. yeah. and how that there are so many different different ways that people can manifest and there's not doesn't mean they're broken it doesn't mean that they don't have you know that they can't still function and i think you know as far as autism goes like that's another one in, in both autism and adhd i would i would say well most things i think you know you can e it can either be mild or it can be more severe yeah. you know kind of that spectrum there um but you know one of the things that you were also mentioning about kind of having those two couple steps ahead there is a lot of research out there that really shows that the d divergent thinking associated with ADHD um, really does lead to increased creativity mm -hmm. and you'll find that a lot of because you do make those associations and can kind of mm -hmm. go off those on those tangents and down those little rabbit holes mm -hmm. and um and and make connections between things that other people would never think to connect for I think one of the fears that people have with medication for ADHD is that if I do this I'm going to lose that mm -hmm. from my own personal experience actually I find that I still have that I'm still able to do that you know and make those connections but I actually am able to make them um like like do something with them mm -hmm. like it's not just the idea and then flitting around and going on to the next thing it's 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 able to say okay oh that's a really great idea how could I actually make that work and then able to kind of plan and prioritize what has to go with it because you kind of have to have both things you can't have just one or the other mm -hmm. to, to be able to follow through on those things yeah I see. So what you're saying is um, before the medication, your mind was more sporadic, like you'd go from one idea to the next. And then mm -hmm. this, the, with the medication, there's a, an added focus that lets you sort of build on each idea as, as you as you think of it. Well, it's like the, yeah. connect, the, the connections I would, if from my assessment, it seems yeah. like the connections are less loose than when you're on right. medication, right? Is that okay? Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. So for example... Um, so if I'm at my office mm -hmm. and, you know, it's towards the end of the day and my medication's wearing off or whatever, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I'm trying to focus on what my client and I are talking about, mm -hmm. what I will notice is that my mind drifts mm -hmm. and I, they'll say something and I'll think of something else and I'll think of something else. And then I'll have to go, wait a second, mm -hmm. where was I again? And mm -hmm. have to circle back to the beginning. And then I don't even remember what those thoughts are. Yeah. When I'm on the medication, I still have those little jumps. Mm -hmm but they don't take me quite as far and I'm able to come back a little bit more quickly. Oh. And so then, so then I'm, and so then I'm able to implement those things better. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there was a, a wow. client a client that I had with ADD where it was something similar. So her version was way it wasn't severe, um, but the thing is like for like the, her coworkers they're like like what are you talking about like how are you on this subject? But like, <laughs> we're talking about this. Yeah. But then my interpretation was like wait well, like how did you see the connection between A and B? And then she points out the connection. I'm like holy shit! Like you're literally just further ahead than where they are. And she's like yeah. And later on in the meeting that we had we actually talked about the thing that I was already thinking about. 
So yeah. that was really cool. But in her mind, she was like, oh, but you know, it's so abnormal. Like, why am I doing this? Like, why is my brain like already at this point where nobody else is? And like kind of the way I would say or see it is that like, I mean, it makes sense, obviously, that you are abnormal in that respect. But in a way, it's also a positive thing because you're kind of two steps ahead of the others, which is why maybe they're upset at you. Right. I think one of the differences sometimes is too, um, you know, you know, the joke about everyone's like, oh, squirrel, you know, like that's kind of the ADHD (laughs) trope, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, so the difference is, um, are you being distracted by the things that you're interacting with? Or are you being distracted by external factors? Mm -hmm. So for me, um, I also, are you familiar with the term uh, misophonia or misophonia? Yeah. Okay. So I have some sensory sensitivity, especially with both smells, but also with sounds. Mm -hmm. And so there are certain sounds that just kind of make me like I want to crawl out of my skin. And so if I'm trying to focus on anything and there are those noises around me, Mm -hmm. I'm distracted and I'm not even thinking about what I'm doing anymore. I'm so distracted by those external, um, you know, events, whatever those might be. But if you're distracted by kind of what's going on in your mind already, you know, if you can bring it back, if you can follow, what is that train of thought? But for me, the medication really helps me be able to define that as opposed to kind of, like I said, just kind of that wandering um, more aimlessly and having a hard time getting back to, to what I was trying to do. Right. That's so fascinating. And so in terms of the treatment, what would you say is, let's say, in terms of treatment for two e-kids and um, what would you say is sort of the main difference between treatment for them now and rather, well, not just treatment, assessment and treatment for them now and treatment of where it was, let's say, maybe 10, 20 years ago? Oh, that's a great question. You know, on my podcast, we we talk about this a lot. We actually just had an episode where we talked to um, a psychologist from the University of Iowa. Her name is Megan Foley Nickpon, mm-hmm. and she does a lot with assessment of twice exceptional kids. I think the biggest thing that people are beginning to be aware of is that when you assess mm-hmm. a twice exceptional individual, you have to take their cognitive ability into con- in context with how they score on particular tests. Mm-hmm. So just because we've been talking about ADHD, kind of sticking with that, mm-hmm. you know, the, we have those continuous performance tests like the TOVA or I think, I don't remember what the others are. That's the one that we have at our office. Mm-hmm. But it actually says in the manual that you have to know an individual's cognitive ability in order to interpret those results because somebody who has a higher cognitive ability mm-hmm. will be able to compensate and may look like they're in the normal range but they're, but really they're not, you know, that you have to, you have to take that into context. Same thing with autism. Mm -hmm. Um, if you have an individual, you know, um, who is, who is cognitively gifted and, you know, they're going to be able to pick up, like, say for, I don't know, just again, kind of a common example, Mm -hmm. you often hear about people on the spectrum who struggle with making eye contact. Well, people who are also then gifted you tell them enough times to make eye contact, mm-hmm. they're they're generally going to be able to start doing that. You know, they're gonna they have the cognitive ability to go, oh, okay, and make that connection. This is something I have to do, and they can kind of practice it. I mean, I have some clients who are on the spectrum who set goals for themselves, like about specific things that they want to you know work on or improve or whatever, mm-hmm. and so then that giftedness masks those. So when you are assessing for those types of things, you have to you have to account for that cognitive giftedness because the results are skewed. When we norm those tests, they are normed for the general population. They are not normed for the top two or 5% of you know people in terms of cognitive ability. Hmm. That's so interesting. How can I, um, let's say, prevent somebody from assessing ADD? Um, well, 
again, for example, so one of the things for, you know, ADHD would be, like I mentioned, with, well, there was the continuous performance test, mm-hmm. right, where they're having to, you know, pay attention for 22 and a half minutes or whatever amount of time mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, on some of those other assessments, though, one of the things that even brings people to question if ADD um, or ADHD is, is present is whether or not their grades are suffering. Mm-hmm. And sometimes for someone who's gifted, they could sit through and only hear 10% of the instruction and still get A's. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily about that. So that's something that I think um, people need to keep uh, be aware of as well. All right. That's so interesting because um, from my memory, the, the kind of one of the clusters is like um, that it has to be present in more than I think two or three kind of facets of yeah, one's life. And technically for a kid who's either at home or in school, it's, if it's not present in school in that sense, and they're like, oh, well, I guess the diagnosis doesn't, isn't applicable here. Right. Well, that's right. so interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and um, for uh, clients or students with um, Asperger's or high functioning autism, how do you teach them to develop their? This is a very broad question, but mm-hmm. I suppose how do you teach them to develop their social skills, or how do you teach them social acuity? Is there any particular yeah. method or technique that you employ, or? Yeah. Well, um, two thoughts. So I want to kind of mention, you, you know, you mentioned Asperger's and, um, you know, high functioning autism. And I guess I just kind of want to, I don't go on the record as, you know, there's a lot of conversation right now in the in the neurodiversity community about whether or not Asperger's and high functioning autism are something that should be differentiated from autism spectrum disorder or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people feel like it's elitist or, you know, that, that people who are autistic, but highly verbal and don't have as many needs as some more severely disabled people, like they use that to kind of like differentiate themselves or they're better than, you know, people who have autism Mm -hmm. when really it's all the same thing. And so um, just kind of for people who are listening, who may not be aware of that, you know, it's kind of just one of those things that I've become more sensitive to with my clients that, Mm. um, or, or, and also, especially with high functioning, that means many different things to many different people. Mm -hmm. So what I see a lot of times in the twice exceptional community is people will say, oh, high functioning autism, but really what they mean is high cognitive ability and autism, which is not the same thing. Mm -hmm. High functioning in the way that it was originally utilized really meant mild, like not needing a lot of interventions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, um, anyway, that's kind of off the topic, but I, I just felt like it was, no, that's I good. think that's important yeah. to say because yeah. a lot of people who are autism advocates are very passionate about that. And I understand that. And so I just wanted to share that as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, so, so, but when I'm working with, with my clients who are autistic, um, I, I definitely, um, uh, it's, it's so case by case, right? I mean, a lot of, a lot of role plays, a lot of logic. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, I always take a strengths-based approach anytime I'm working with my clients. And so, you know, rather than just focusing on the deficit, you know, um, I, I really help them to, like, what are your strengths? What are the things that you can do? So here's an example. Um, I had a client, you know, so one of the things with autism are those special interests, right? Um, sometimes called perseverative interests, where they just are super focused on a particular mm-hmm. topic. And that's really the one thing that they really like to talk about. Mm-hmm. So any way that I can kind of get involved with that, I try to do that. So like, I know more about Pokemon than any grown <laughs> woman should ever know. <laughs> um, I know, you know, like uh, Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. which is a game that a lot, you know, like all of these things that it's like, okay, I kind of knew what they were, but now I know way more about them. But I had a client who really loved Harry Potter, which actually I'm a huge 
fan as well. <laughs> but we were talking about one of the things that we did was he was struggling with some bullying and some friend issues and wanting to make friends. Mm-hmm. And so what we went through is we went through all of the spells that we could remember from the Harry Potter series mm-hmm. and said, which of these could we use to either, you know, handle a bully or, um, you know, try to make new friends or whatever. And then we also looked up Greek and Latin word parts to make up our own spells Mm -hmm. in order to kind of help him. But that put it into a context that he could understand. And then we were able to then move from there um, to, to what are, what does that practically look like? And so we do a lot of role plays and um, a lot of, you know, a lot of very um, cognitive based skills. I think that's what I find works a lot with my, with my, twice exceptional clients um, when you when you kind of focus on that that intellectual curiosity and focus on you know um, that problem solving those higher level thinking skills like having them create their own solutions and then also a lot of times I just teach them about the the um, the biological and the neurological pieces that go into whatever they're dealing with because that helps them understand it but then also externalize it like oh it's not me it's just the way my brain is wired, and here's how I can work around that. Wow. And how would you explain neurodiversity to them? Um, I think I would, I would really just tell them <laughs> that, you know, all of our brains are wired differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like we all have our own unique fingerprint, um, we all have our own neurological wiring and some people's brains function differently. And that doesn't mean that they're wrong or that they're bad. It's just, it's just different. And, um, you know, it depends on the kid. You know, I feel like a lot of times parents will ask me, well, should I tell my child about their diagnosis? Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I always, I handle it individually, of course, with that family and what might be right for that family and that child. But my leaning is always yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Tell them, why would you, why would you, I mean, I understand, I think the fear sometimes is that maybe kids will, it will become a learned helplessness or like they can't do this because this is how my brain works. Mm -hmm. But I find ultimately often it's, it's just more empowering. Mm -hmm. It makes it so that it's not, um, it moves it from a place of, of shame and guilt into, you know, just kind of this, this external factor that I can find solutions for. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, talking, talking to the kids about that, um, they can really understand that a lot of times I do a lot of mindfulness, but I talk to them about how the, um, you know, what, what are the, what are the ways that your, our body reacts Mm -hmm. in order to, um, you know, calm ourselves when we're feeling anxious or whatever. And, and they really, I think that's a great way to say, this isn't just another adult who's telling you what to do. (laughs) This is, there's, there's some science behind this. There's some reason behind this. And that tends to help them, um, you know, maybe be be willing to, to take a risk and try a different strategy that, that they haven't tried before. Yeah. And the worst thing that I find about the labels themselves is not that they themselves are bad, but it's just that a lot of times people globalize and they pretty much think that those labels are all that they are. So if let's say I, I have bipolar disorder, then I am bipolar. Or if I have schizophrenia, then I am schizophrenia. So a lot of times kind of just in therapy in general, I mean, a therapist tend to do is sort of to focus on the other qualities that they have, that the one diagnosis doesn't necessarily define who they are. Yeah, 100%. And I think also being able to... Um, I have found that my clients who are older, mm-hmm. well, 
either handle it one of two ways. My clients who are older, so I have, you know, I have some adult clients and a lot of times they've perhaps self-diagnosed mm -hmm. and hearing that validation when they really realize that that's what's going on, that yeah. can be very empowering to them. But quite often, if, if there's somebody who's older and, and they haven't ever thought about that before or understood that or whatever, that can be pretty devastating. Mm -hmm. um, wow. It's really hard. I have, a, I have a client who, you know, is in um, their early 20s and is really struggling with that autism diagnosis. And we were just talking about it the other day. It's been probably six months or so that we've been kind of trying to work through this. Yeah. And they were just saying that they feel like they're broken, like this is something that's wrong with them that'll never be fixed now. Mm -hmm. Before it was just something they could fix and now they can't. And and so we're really trying to work through a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, it, it's 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 hard. It is a disability. I mean, mm -hmm. I think, I, I, like I said, I, I really love taking a strengths-based approach and recognizing that all of these different diagnoses come with a different way of viewing the world. And it's important for us to have a lot of different um, perspectives when we're interpreting the world like that that helps us and that makes it makes our world a better place but it does come with struggles too and you can't just you know put on rose-colored glasses and pretend that it doesn't right and I mean the hyper focus in terms of autism a lot of times is that strength that a lot of autistic kids and obviously adults too are pretty brilliant individuals that they're very sort of um well they're pretty much savants not always obviously but that no. do you know about the association between that between savants and autism Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, so basically, you know, so savants can be people who are autistic, not necessarily, you yeah. know, so savantism is, is specifically more related to um, some type of a neurological difference. Um, but then, you know, sometimes at a lower level, they're also called like splinter skills, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and then as you kind of go up, you know, savant is somebody who's like truly you know, exceptional, like a product, you know, like prodigy, master, but in right? this one, yes, in this one specific area. Um, but you might have, have people who, um, you know, who have those splinter skills where they just, you know, these peaks and valleys of abilities and, and, um, achievement. And so, but I, I think I read recently or heard recently, um, individuals with autism make up, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to say more than half because I don't remember the exact number. I believe it was around 70% of individuals who also have that savant um, piece of it, you know, um, of all those people who have that savant uh, uh, syndrome, the right term for that. I'm, I'm honestly I'm not, not sure. remembering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but anyway, about 80, 70 or 80% of people who are autistic um, make up that population. And then the others are other neurological um, pieces. And so, but don't quote me on it. But it's definitely okay. more than half. I can find the source if we need to. But <laughs> <laughs> And so then how do you think that we could counteract bullying? So in terms of obviously people with 2E, kind of like kids who obviously struggle with it in school in terms of not wanting to reveal those diagnoses to other people or maybe not even wanting to accept them themselves. Yeah. Well, I think first of all, I think sometimes, it, so actually, we didn't mention this earlier, in my interim, so I was a classroom teacher, and then I taught in the gifted ed program, but then on my pathway to private practice, I did work as a school counselor. Okay, cool. And so, um, one of the things that I find about bullying is, bullying overall is pretty rare. It, it doesn't happen, I don't think, nearly as much as what we make it out to happen, or what kids think that it happens. And what I find a lot of times is that um, either kids feel like they're being bullied, but they're mislabeling it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just somebody who's being kind of a jerk or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and when I talk about bullying, you know, there are kind of these three components that go into it. The first is that it's targeted, you know, 
someone is specifically chosen and so they're bullying that one person um it has to be repetitive mm-hmm. and then the, and that third per- that person who's being targeted can't have any power so those are kind of the three criteria for it to truly be bullying mm-hmm. and um and so a lot of times it's just like having an argument or being being mean to somebody or, or sometimes there's just some people who are kind of crabby and mean you know and they're just kind of mean to everyone but that's not necessarily targeted right mm-hmm. so um, but then the flip side of that is I think there are sometimes kids who bully who don't even realize that they are bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's someone who they feel like is irritating to them or is bothersome to them and they don't like it. And so they're trying to somehow fix an interpersonal problem. So I think in general, just helping kids focus on, co- focus on conflict resolution and is, is, is one big piece. Mm-hmm. But additionally, helping them understand, um, kind of like I said, those three components so that they can really look for those things in their relationships. Helping kids who are being targeted really focus on self-advocacy mm-hmm. and being able to, you know, get away from those situations. And then also giving kids who are, you know, who do tend to maybe fall into that category of bully, giving them other skills and techniques and figuring out what's going on with them. Because I think typically that's not a, that's not a real, um, it's not a real n- normal reaction to everyday situations. And so, um, you know, helping them recognize that as well. Do you think that it would help them, the kids who are bullied, to understand or to know, rather? I mean, that it's a projection, kind of their own insecurities in terms of the bullies? I think that helps them believe that it's not something that's wrong with them. I think the hardest type of bullying to deal with, though, is that middle school girl bullying, Mm -hmm. where it's the exclusion. Um, And and so, and I don't know, I don't know that I was necessarily bullied in middle school, but I definitely had some kids who were pretty mean to me. So, for example, like, I ended up, I had tried out and and made the cheerleading squad for freshman year in Mm -hmm. eighth grade, and then somebody came and, like, scrawled on my locker, you know, some really nasty stuff, you know, that, about how I didn't deserve to be on the, you know, squad or whatever actually what was kind of ironic is because grades were a component of the qualification Mm. and so they said on there that i only got in because of my grades and i'm like well that's (laughs) clearly not true because my grades are terrible but that's funny that you think that (laughs) (laughs) but but, you know um and so there were definitely some times but i was also i think to my benefit pretty aloof about most things Mm -hmm. and so if people were being mean to me most of the time i think it just went right over my head um you know so that was kind of a protective factor but i think it's kind of like your own superpower yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. That's my ADHD. It's like, what? Did someone say something? <laughs> I don't even know. I was in my own head. <laughs> I was thinking about this thing that happened like five years ago. Yeah, I was like, I don't even know what happened. Actually, my mom tells a story. There was I was probably in high school and I was also I, I was pretty outgoing, um, mm-hmm. but like I said, pretty clueless and I would pretty much talk to anyone who would listen yeah. right and so that's why I had to start a podcast because uh, I need people <laughs> to listen to um, and I went up to somebody we were at like a shoe store or something and there was someone from my high school who worked there and she said yeah Emily you went up and you were like talking to this person who worked at, who went to your high school and you were talking to them for like 10 minutes and they just kind of basically ignored you mm-hmm. and finally you go okay well nice to talk to you and you walked away it was like I didn't even care I don't know I, even, <laughs> I go that's definitely on brand for uh, <laughs> Um, no, but, but as far as, um, you know, those, those middle school girls with that exclusion and that being, being so isolated, like that's the hardest thing to work around. Um, I remember I had a client who was, um, I think a sixth grader and she was just so depressed and medication wasn't working and she was really, really struggling. She didn't have any friends and I was very worried about her. Um, on multiple occasions about self-harm and suicidality. Mm-hmm. And then her dad got transferred to a new, and they had to move to a different area a few hours away. Mm-hmm. And after they had moved a month or two later, her mom emailed me and said, she found two 
good friends the first day she was here and she's been awesome. <laughs> and and it's like we forget about those environmental factors, you know. It's like no wonder the medication wasn't doing anything because it was so environmental. It was it was about being excluded and not having anyone to talk to and not having those connections. Mm -hmm. But it, how do you how do you work around that and tell people you have to go and be friends with this person? You know, it's just kind of an awkward, mm. weird thing to work around. Um, you know, is how do you how do you prove that that is um, as hurtful as it is to people? Yeah, or maybe kind of inversely, you can ask them kind of like, why is it that they wouldn't want to be friends with that person? Why do they think that that person mm. is so different from them? Right, right. And I think also because it is kind of that silent mm. um, type of behavior, it's not noticed as much. Yeah. And so for my client, like she was not very good at well, she was very, had very poor self-advocacy skills. It was really hard for her to speak up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, yeah, it was just, it was heartbreaking to watch her. And I'm so happy that, that things turned out better for her when she moved. But I was worried. I was scared that the move was going to be not good, yeah. <laughs> you know, even worse than it was. But mm -hmm. it turned out okay. And what do you think in your life, what's helped you cope, like in terms of, um, so a lot of the sort of, or the major kind of struggle I see a lot of times with clients is that they personalize obviously a lot of this stuff and it's very hard not to. So what do you think was so helpful for you? What were some of your kind of internal coping mechanisms for that? Mm. Well, like I said, I, I, I struggled um, for a lot of my life feeling like I was anxious and depressed mm -hmm. when really, when really I wasn't, you know, and so um, I, I think that that was really difficult for me. I do feel like um, I've gotten a lot better over all of the years of being able to separate myself from some of those intense emotions. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've gotten much more, much better at kind of just that mindfulness, like recognizing, okay, one of the things I talk to my clients about so often that I feel like is so helpful for me is when um, those emotions come up and talking to them about how emotions are like waves mm -hmm. and sometimes they're big waves and sometimes they're small waves but the one thing that you know is that when a wave comes in it will go back out it'll go back out to sea and you just kind of have to wait it out and that I think is helpful like this is temporary this feeling right now is temporary um, I know that a lot of people with ADHD um, struggle with rejection sensitivity dysphoria mm -hmm. and so what is that so rejection sensitivity dysphoria so First of all, let me back up. With mm -hmm. ADHD, we have you know inattentive type, and then mm -hmm. we have predominantly hyperactive type, and then you have combined type. Mm -hmm. But really, the third characteristic um, beyond the hyperactivity and impulsivity or the inattention with ADHD is is um, emotionality. Mm -hmm. Very strong emotions, very quick emotions, and so kind of that zero to sixty, you know, in no time flat. Mm -hmm. And and so rejection sensitivity dysphoria is kind of this hypersensitivity to any negative feedback um, because and, and you know it's like and I don't really know that there's necessarily consensus about this at this point about where that comes from it does it come from um, because kids or individuals have have learned for so long that they're constantly making mistakes and they're constantly messing up mm -hmm. so any perceived criticism is like is, is just devastating like oh here I go again I, I, I messed everything up again mm -hmm. um, but it's this very deep and intense sense of um, loss of control and, you know, uh, um, isolation and not feeling good enough. And that can be really difficult. Um, I mentioned, you know, about 
what kind of causes that. I do think that there's something much more intrinsic about that. Mm -hmm. And here's an example. So I have three kids. Um, My older two are both um, have ADHD and my younger one, who's only four, Mm -hmm. has not been diagnosed yet, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) we'll just kind of, you know, wait it out. And the other day, um, he had a little toy. It was actually his brother's toy. It was like a little airplane that he it was kind of made out of foam and he liked playing with it and he, he was playing with it. And we had told him a couple times to be kind of gentle with it mm-hmm. because it would break. Well, anyway, he kind of broke it and it just bent. It wasn't, it wasn't really broken and it's not that big a deal. It's this little foam airplane thing. But anyway, I so said he kind of all of a sudden, um, I was very reassuring. Oh, oh, it broke. Okay, we've got to be careful about this. Let's see. You know, we don't want it to get broken. We don't want to have to, you know, try to fix it or mm-hmm. hopefully we'll still be able to use it. And then and then immediately though, he was in the other room and curled up on the crouch, couch and just crying and it was like this perceived like yeah. rejection. Like I had I had, you know, and I hadn't gotten on to him at all. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine for people who have ADHD having that rejection um whether it's, you know, um somebody dismissing them or somebody saying, you know, that they don't like their ideas or where are you, your head's in the clouds, all of those different things make it very difficult then to um, be motivated in whatever that situation is. Like, why do I want to try if everything always ends up with me failing? And so, um, you know, but, but helpful, but for me, what that really does, though, is when I experience that, and I do experience it, you know, every once in a while I'll get negative feedback about something on the podcast or whatever, mm-hmm. and I'm like... Oh, us too. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely right. Really. It's like when you put something out there in the public, it's it's open for critique, yeah. and, you know, I get this that sinking feeling in my stomach, and sometimes it'll even get to the point where you know, someone is having suicidal thoughts, like, I just don't, I wish I wasn't alive anymore, I wish I didn't have to do this, and it's, but for me... The coping skill that really works is going, okay, this is temporary. I feel this way right now. Mm-hmm. I just kind of have to sit with it, but it'll pass. And that is, I think, um, a really important coping skill um, to deal with all of that, those negative um, pieces that sometimes go along with it. And so, I mean, I'm kind of just going through this in my mind. What's so fascinating about this is, so we pretty much know that ADHD is a neurological disorder at this point, right? Psychotherapy, I mean, it's very minimally effective for it. Mm -hmm. But I'm also now thinking of it in the context of perfectionism and sort of sensitivity or rejection sensitivity. So kind of the psychodynamic and pretty much the psychotherapeutic literature in general would say that that kind of perfectionism stems from childhood, right? So it's like if you kind of go to its source, you can sort of convince, you know, the person who has it like, hey, no, your parents had really exuberant expectations for you they were super unrealistic right but then now like looking at it from the perspective of neurology if that didn't happen if that wasn't a part of the person's childhood i would wonder right i mean obviously on top of treating it in terms of the here and now what could some other effective treatments be for that if it is purely sort of brain kind of like well neurological issue mm-hmm. right yeah well it all comes down to to i think um self-acceptance mm-hmm. i think is huge and then um self-advocacy and um, building up a structure around oneself that is going to support what those needs are. And recognizing that that having those needs, this is the self-acceptance piece, having those needs doesn't make you bad or lazy or unmotivated. Yeah. It just means that this is how your brain is wired and this is what you need to function. And of course you can be successful, just like somebody who has a broken leg needs crutches. Mm-hmm. You know, and so... Um, and I think that that is is really helpful. Um, I do a lot with my. I think, I think the thing I struggle with with my ADHD clients a lot of times is is parents will sometimes, <laughs> like fix it here, 
<laughs> fix this problem. And it's yeah, like, yeah. well, uh -huh. that's not really how it's going to work. But we can find some ways to to modify and, 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 you know, figure out what will work as far as the environment goes. Do we need a 504 plan at the school? Mm -hmm. What do we really need to help, um, you know, this person be successful? And even as my clients get older, you know, those expectations change. And so, you know, when I'm doing the, the psychotherapy piece of it, we're really focusing on um, the emotions that go along with it, mm -hmm. as well as the the practical strategies, like how do we how do we work around this problem? But yeah, yeah you're not gonna you're not gonna make ADHD go away. Like that's just not gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because now I was also thinking about some of the prior. I don't remember exactly what they were, but some of the prior psychoanalytic theories of ADD that it was like based in childhood and obvious trauma. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly where they were, but it's so fascinating because now if we kind of put it into um, into the context of obviously um, rejection sensitivity disorder, which I mean, from my understanding, is it's not really a thing that it's, there's no consensus on it. So it's something, mm -hmm. yeah. So, but I mean, it genuinely it does seem to be connected to ADHD. But my kind of thinking is now like maybe sort of in terms of these. Um, this kind of type of therapist who focus on childhood where you know we should just stop like if a therapist says hey no no this has to have come from your childhood and you know there must have been something there with your parents and the client says like no really i had like really great relationships with my parents that has nothing to do with that so i mean so maybe we, we would try to kind of stop enforcing our theories onto maybe things that we don't necessarily fully understand well, yeah, and I think that that's a very generalizable statement to most yeah, <laughs> situations. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that as 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 psychotherapists, I think quite often um, we need to be aware of our own blind spots. Yeah. You know, and when we need to make referrals out. And I feel like you know, I have had so many clients who have come in to me. Um, more than anything, I have the one that I see most frequently is I have clients who come in and have been given an, a diagnosis of ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, and often again, they're twice exceptional and their parents are like, we tried medication, we tried this, whatever, but it never worked. And it's like, and then all of a sudden we realized, no, this is autism. But you know, the, the stimming behaviors, for example, were seen as hyperactivity. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, uh, inattention wasn't necessarily inattention it was more a social communication piece oh, right like not understanding and so you can see how those things can mimic each other but what happens is because because we don't know because people don't know they slap on a label that they think fits mm -hmm. and that's hard i mean how do you you know when it's truly a blind spot how do we know right <laughs> i mean yeah. but but hopefully just being aware like okay i'm not exactly sure about this, we need to find somebody who has more of an expertise, like in this particular area. And I'm constantly referring out, you know, to other professionals because, like, I would, I, I don't work with people with eating disorders. And yeah. if we even start looking like it might be an eating disorder, I say, this is not my area of expertise. And so I would rather have somebody get help than spin their wheels with something that won't. Right. Yeah. yeah. And actually, um, there's something that uh, Leon uh, wanted to, was going to ask, but I'll, I guess I'll ask this sure. myself. Um, so how can we tailor teaching to accommodate uh, to each children's needs? And also, do we do we have to in general in the classroom environment? Like, what, what would you suggest? Well, I would I would advocate for taking, like I mentioned, a strengths based approach. Mm -hmm. um, when you have a child who's struggling, let's say you have a twice exceptional child who is dyslexic, mm -hmm. um, you know, or has dysgraphia. So that's a disability um, related to writing. 
you can't just sit there and drill and kill and hammer into them to help build up that deficit because what will happen is the strengths will then atrophy. Mm-hmm. You you have to be able to, but when you take it from a strengths-based approach, not only are you facilitating m- motivation, um, you're also facilitating um, just kind of empowerment of uh, over their over one's environment. And so helping kids to know that they can find ways to to be successful, you know, whether you're modifying the curriculum or you're just changing, you know, the the way that you're presenting assignments or whatever the case might be, um, you can really, you can be flexible with that. I think the other part of it is, um, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of Ryan and Desi's um, self-determination theory of motivation. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, you know, without getting in the weeds with it too much, there are three main things that people need to feel motivated. And I think ultimately when we're talking about kids who are struggling at school, a lot of times what we are talking about is a, is a, a gap between motivation and what we're asking them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course that's, not taking into account, you know, someone who has dyslexia, you know, there are other things that obviously are standing in the way there. But the three components that they talk about that you need for for motivation are, you need autonomy, Mm -hmm. so a sense of independence and a sense of, you know, control over your environment. Mm -hmm. You need a sense of competence, I can do this. And for gifted individuals, it, it has to be, it has to be well, for everybody, mm-hmm. but I think what happens a lot of times is it, it can't be too challenging, but it also has to be challenging enough. Yes. If you give somebody that is below their ability level, they're just going to be bored out of their minds and they're going to go, you know, they don't feel competent. They feel like somebody says, oh, well, you're not good at, you know, here's what you need to do. And then th- the third part is relatedness. You have to have that connection. You have to have that that person who is willing to sit there and say, oh, I, I, I get this. How can I, you know, what do we need to do to help you? What's going to work for you? And I think if we get too caught up in, um, you know, just really being disciplining some of these behaviors mm-hmm. out of kids. It just, it doesn't work at all. It, it doesn't work to help the child. It doesn't work to help them get their grades up. It you know, the, there's no benefit to disciplining a child. And, and I would say the flip side of disciplining kids is, you know, giving them rewards and, and, you know, bribery to do their work. It's like, that's not, that's not effective. And especially with twice exceptional kids who. Oh, great. Okay. So uh, we're experiencing a little technical difficulty. Uh, we're working on that we're working as we on speak. <laughs> Let's see. I think it'll come back. It's okay. If not, we can reconnect. Well, that's fine. Um, but anyway, uh, what, do, what do you think so far of the no. conversation? So I've learned a lot from this one. I'll... Like, yeah. there's stuff about autism and ADD that I didn't know. It's so cool. Uh, honestly, same here. Mm-hmm. Um, man, uh, it's imp- I was actually listening to um, an episode from the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was episode 44. There was a gentleman named Brandon Mahan. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about uh, executive functioning mm-hmm. on the show and, like, how to, how to uh, develop that mm-hmm. in uh, children and clients. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, it's very interesting. And it's something, actually, I wanted to ask her about when uh, she comes back on, mm-hmm. if anything, you know what I'm going to try to do? Recall. I'm going to try to, yeah, recall. Ah, there you go. Perfect. Let's try that again. That should be okay. Should be good. <laughs> if anything, uh, definitely a uh, cool guest <laughs> as far as that goes. <laughs> Blackout. Hmm. 
Okay, that's fine. Let's. So, let's see. So while we're working on that, <laughs> while um, we're waiting, <laughs> <laughs> what we can do is we can uh, cut it off here for now, mm-hmm. and I guess uh, come back with her, and we could just edit it afterwards. Cool. Yeah. That's yeah. Cool. That's what we're gonna have to do. If anything. No, nah, we don't need to do a just in case like ending or anything like mm-hmm. that, right? Just what? just cut it off here for now. Oh, right? just yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So I got see nothing you. else. <laughs> see, <you laughs> see you guys soon. <laughs> That's cool. All right, and we are back after some technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Emily. And okay, so what were we talking about? <laughs> I don't know. My ADHD is not going to come back to that one. I know. Oh, yeah, what almost, was it? I may have. Uh, I think we no. all have ADD. Hold on. Was well, it about um, teaching and like structure? Oh, yes. yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about motivation and stuff. Yes, yes, yes. There it is. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so the three sources of motivation up? is where we got cut off. Okay. So you want me to go through those again or you already have? No, them? we got them. We got them. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I mean, I think in general, though, for teachers to recognize that and really focus on what you're doing there, I think the competence piece for twice exceptional kids comes from finding very discrete, accomplishable tasks. I mean, I know everybody knows what a SMART goal is, right? But think about setting that with a child. Mm -hmm. How can we set a little micro goal, especially when you're relating it to, um, you know, especially if it's something related to behavior, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like how can we work on um, helping them develop this skill and then self-assess? Like the self-assessment piece is key Mm -hmm. for them to be able to recognize what I need to do in order to to make progress for this. And so, I mean, it's hard to talk about academics necessarily just because that's so different for every child. But I think ultimately, um, I guess one one basic thing, you know, and so if anybody's there and is advocating for a child or, or working with some kids, being able to, um, again, at that competence le- level, right? Like, how do we make sure we're teaching them where they're competent? You know, pre-testing mm-hmm. is a huge way to make sure kids are getting the content. And if someone can take a pre-test and score an 80% or above, mm-hmm. they they have mastered that content. You can fill in whatever little gaps there are, but let them move on to something more challenging, more more um, motivating, because otherwise they're just going to be sitting there going, why am, I, why am I here? Why am I doing this? You have some of those kids who are who are teacher pleasers yeah. who will do it and be compliant about it, mm-hmm. but then it, it's really still not healthy for them either, even if it looks like they're doing what they need. Yeah. Right. So you'd be facilitating like um, those students who need a little bit more of a challenge, you'd be facilitating um, the chance for them to access a flow state, right? Like mm-hmm. they would be able to uh, then be more engaged. Right. Find, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that 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 balance there between you know level of challenge and interest, you know, and being able to really um, um, move forward, right? Like, I mean, who wants to sit there and do something boring? Nobody does, mm-hmm. you know. Um, why do we expect kids to do that? I don't. I don't know. It's like we we kind of forget. And just because it's good for seventy five percent of your class, mm-hmm. you know, and I know you've got kids at the low end and kids at the high end. Well, that doesn't mean that you just get to ignore them. They still need something different. Um, you know, I think a, a great example of this is just talking about motivation, what teachers can do, going back to what I was sharing earlier about my fifth grade year. Mm-hmm. So one of my one of the expectations that my teacher had for me was that I would write my spelling words five times each. Mm-hmm. But th- that assignment was given once a week on Mondays, which was the day that I attended my gifted education program. Mm-hmm. So I didn't ever... Um, so for me to do that in the evenings and, and do it on my own was difficult. But additionally, like in third grade, 
I, I won the spelling bee in my class. In fifth grade, I came in second place. In sixth grade, I won. You know, yeah. I, I didn't need to write spelling words five times each. Think about all the different ways that she could have handled that. She could have given me different words. She could have given me hmm. or just excused me from the words. But instead, she chose to just give me a zero in the grade book every time. Yeah. And, and, it, and between my executive functioning deficits and not feeling motivated because it wasn't a cha- it was it wasn't I didn't have the competence I didn't have the relatedness I didn't have the autonomy I had none of those things right. and there was nothing that you could have done you could have given me a hundred dollar bill for every word that I wrote and I it it just wasn't going to happen yeah and I find that in terms of therapy and just teaching that a lot of times that both the educators and therapists struggle with the same things and so what I mean by that is that they like so in terms of for therapy for it to be effective I don't know why this isn't more widespread for me it's kind of shocking but you have to kind of have a treatment plan and explain to the patient like why you're doing what you're doing and I think it's the same thing with teaching so when I was a kid I was actually the opposite of a teacher pleaser like I couldn't give a <laughs> shit about school altogether right and I and I and I hated it. I really, really, like, really disliked school because I didn't understand why I was learning what I was learning and how it would be relevant to my life in any sort of long term. And so for me, I was kind of pretty much, and teachers unfortunately have said this to me, where they thought that I was like slow and kind of incompetent. Mm. And they're like, we don't understand like why you're kind of like this. And so my thinking now is that I pretty much, I think I have ADD too, because I kind of struggled mm. with the same things where I was really bored in school. Oh, I would daydream a lot. There was a teacher in third grade that actually called me out for like kind of being spaced out in my own head. And he's like, 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 dude, you're like really weird. And then like no. literally kids, I'm not kidding. Like that was, a, it was so shitty in third grade. And, wow. then, like, and then I had that label and it was like, what the fuck? Like you're such yeah. an asshole. But so, but for me, the thing was like, um, so if I, I think at least now, I don't know for sure when I was a kid, but I think if they just told me like, Hey, no, 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 we're teaching you these particular skills because you're going to use them at this particular point for these particular things. I think it would have made more sense as to why I'm sitting in a seemingly prison type <laughs> cell <laughs> from nine to whatever three learning something that I had absolutely no interest in. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think also we, we, we don't take the time to understand what's behind that stuff. Like if that teacher had just taken half a minute, you know, to kind of figure out what was really going on, yeah. you know, think of how much of a difference that could have make, made. And you're right. I think, I think as, as therapists, we do that too. We, we know what we're doing and we know why we're doing it, yeah. but that's kind of going back to what I was talking about with, you know, telling the kids about the why, right? Yeah. Like, how does this work? Why does it work? This is how you can try it. The other thing that I find is really helpful with kids is to have them as part of the immediate process of thinking about what works for them and what doesn't and giving them that opportunity for feedback because they often know what works for them and they have the best ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think sometimes, you know, I don't know. It's it's hard. It, it was hard to be in the te- a teacher. When I taught in the general ed classroom, part of the reason I went back almost immediately and got my master's in gifted ed was because mm-hmm. it was hard to be in the t- in the classroom. And with my executive functioning struggles, mm-hmm. you know, the grading and the remediation and keeping track of all of the things was just really overwhelming for me. But at the same time, you know, the areas that I felt like, um, you know, were most important as far as, you know, helping my kids know themselves and know what works. You know, those were the things that I was able to really do. And I think so many teachers get caught up in the other stuff mm-hmm. that they forget about this and, and, or maybe just don't think as explicitly about it perhaps. Um, and by no fault of their own, it's just the system that they're in. You know, I think that that's kind of what's expected. Yeah. Speaking to that, and this is kind of an improvised question. Do you think 
that maybe we need a new type of class added to the curriculum in, in general, like something that has to, something that would teach students, I suppose, in sort of in a way that's tailored to them about uh, one, neurodiversity, two, how to maybe uh, not identify with your emotions or thoughts or beliefs or um, different kinds of ways of learning or like, uh, for example, in terms of bullying, like, for example, when a person is projecting, like Leon mentioned earlier, like little little things that maybe aren't normally uh, taught to students that maybe should be taught to them at sort of an earlier age, uh, maybe even uh, mindfulness practices as well. Or to like build, build up empathy? To build up empathy, to kind of get an understanding of themselves, to kind of get an understanding of how someone else feels, how, how they're thinking, maybe, uh, di you know, a little bit uh, about divergent thinking. But of course, maybe if you're teaching a, a child, maybe you're not going to, you're not going to say, hey guys, this is divergent thinking. And this is, maybe right. you're going to talk about it differently. I'm not sure because I'm not necessarily qualified to create that curriculum. But yeah, uh, yeah Emily, I was wondering, do you think like, something like that would be necessary or... Uh, helpful to students? Well, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, but but I, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here with that, you know, of course, yeah. I, I think that definitely that's something that's useful. I know that there are a lot of people out there who would say that social emotional learning in general is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. And I think that those people are privileged in the fact that they are not um, perhaps neurodiverse in the same way that other kids are and haven't been haven't been on the outside there. Um, you know, but ultimately those are skills that all kids can use. And, you know, I know most schools do have, you know, they have guidance counselors who go in and do class lessons and everything else. But I have a, a, a friend who is a teacher and she's kind of a mindfulness expert. We actually had her as a guest on our, on our podcast. And she talks about how she integrates mindfulness into her classroom on a daily basis. And she has measured, you know, the, the discipline issues and the achievement and the time on task. And it, it, you know, she has data that supports that this works, um, you know, to to help kids be more self-regulated. But but, you know, it, it sounds to a lot of people like, I don't know, just a bunch of baloney or whatever, like they don't really understand it or or um, want to take the time away from other things to do it. Yeah. What do you think the barrier is? Like, how come you think it is so difficult for people to understand that other people just simply have different experiences and different ways of kind of being in the world? Hmm. I can think of many, um, but I think that might the podcast might go on too long. No, <laughs> no. I think. Um, well, I think there are some people who have just been very, like I said, kind of lucky and privileged in their lives that they haven't had to deal with those things. Yeah. And I think that unfortunately, people have a difficult time with empathy um, when it's not connected with their own experiences. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to have empathy when I've been there or when I've, when someone I've been close to has been there, mm -hmm. but to take the time to really understand where someone else is coming from mm -hmm. is a really both, um, time consuming and emotionally exhausting prospect. Yeah. And I think that that's a lot to ask for people. And also, you know, I, for just because we've been talking about executive functioning skills, for example, you know, um, there are people who kind of just learn those things on their own. Mm -hmm. um, they just kind of like by osmosis or something. I'm not really sure who those people are or what that's like because mm -hmm. I'm not one of them and I don't, none of my family, you know, yeah. is, is part of that. But, but at the same time though, it doesn't hurt to just really explicitly talk about that and teach it. Like it's not going to hurt them just because they already kind of are able to do it. Yeah. Um, to, to give it a name mm -hmm. and talk about some other different strategies that might come in handy for them in the future. 
And, and the thing about a lot of those things is that it doesn't take much time out of the day. You can do those here, there, and everywhere without, you know, losing a lot of instructional time, which I think is always the fear of, of teachers and administrators. Mm, yeah. And it seems like kind of the best thing that anybody can do is try as obviously best as they can to strike a balance between empathy and discipline rather than mm-hmm. kind of veering toward one spectrum or one end of the spectrum rather than the other. And obviously for the most part, I mean, for my, I remember from my childhood, all I had was discipline. <laughs> like for the most part, when, yeah. when it came to yeah, being in school, I don't remember any teacher like ever asking me like, hey, what's your home life like? Is there a particular reason why you're not engaged in class? Same here. Yeah. 100%. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, and, and I think ultimately, I do think that that, that is changing gradually. Mm-hmm. But again, I think teachers have so much on their plates. Yeah that it it's hard to really do that. And especially those kids who, well, it's much easier to think about it as a behavior issue, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, I had a situation. So like I mentioned, my daughter is um, also ADHD and gifted. And so mm-hmm. she's in fourth grade. And just this past week, I, I haven't, this happened on Friday. She came home on Friday. So in their class, they do um, class dojo. Are you familiar with class dojo? Mm-hmm. No. I heard you it's, discuss it with Brendan Mahan on the oh, yeah, recent yeah, yeah. podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But actually, yeah, could, could you describe what the Class Dojo is, please? Yeah, Class Dojo is basically um, it's an online program where kids can either earn points or lose points. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, just think about any other behavior modification system, basically. And so, but classes use it for whatever reason, they use it quite often. And so, um, but the other thing that this, so Maggie's class does that. Then the other thing that they do is they get tallies each day. And so if they don't get any tallies at, um, by the end of the day, they get to put their name up on a bingo board. So Maggie a lot of times has tallies, you know, and all these different things. But um, so Friday, I don't really know exactly what happened. I still have to investigate. So I, I, I am aware of that. But this is how it was relayed to me from, from my daughter. And that was at the end of the day, they were getting ready to draw, um, I think it's for a piece of candy or something. I'm not really sure. Um, for, draw the bingo board square that got this. So anyway, the teacher had already drawn. Maggie was walking up to the board and hadn't wrote, written her name down on whatever bingo square she was going to pick. And so she wrote it down. And then the teacher thought she was cheating because she'd already picked, but Ma- but Maggie happened to write it on the one that didn't have anyone else's name on it, right. but that was the one that was chosen. Oh, wow. And so, so she called her out for it, made her erase her name, yeah. wouldn't let her pick another one. Then Maggie, my very determined, outspoken... Mm-hmm. ADHD child got really upset and said, well, you can't take that away from me. I earned it. I'm sure it came across as disrespectful. I have no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. And what Maggie said was that the teacher said, well, I don't really care what you earned. You're not going to get it, you know, or something to that Mm -hmm. effect. That's how she, that's how she heard it at least. And then relate it to me. And I'm just going, what is she learning about this? Like, let's say, let's just say for the sake of argument, let's say she did see what the bingo square was and wrote her name intentionally on that particular square. Mm -hmm. Who cares? Who, you know, it's like, do you talk to her about it? You could express like, Hey, you didn't see that. Did you? Because I would want to make sure that you weren't cheating. Okay. You didn't. Okay. I'm going to take you at your word. Mm -hmm. That would still convey the message that it's not okay to do that intentionally. Mm -hmm. And she could learn that lesson, but from a place of acceptance, as opposed to a place of you're a bad kid, you're lying. I'm calling you out in front of all your friends. And um, I'm, I'm, and, and I know that for the therapist side of me is like I know that a lot of my emotions about my daughter Maggie mm-hmm. and my son Grayson, but both of them, 
are about my stuff <laughs> from when I was a kid. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I, I know what that's like, and I don't want them to have those same experiences. And so I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out as a parent how I'm going to handle that. Um, I don't know. I've got, I've got until tomorrow morning to figure out what it's going to be. Yeah, I mean, maybe even sort of just kind of modeling what that would look like for her in terms of what you would say to her. So right. Just, yeah, right. Yeah, but it's hard to, to come, you know, here's the problem, I think, for, for teachers and counselors, but for me, it's like, I feel like I'm one of those people, it's like, I just know too much mm. <laughs> about the pro of about what it is. And so then mm. it's like, if I feel like a lot of parents would just go, well, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have done that, whatever. And I, I asked Maggie, by the, you know, I was like, did you do it? I'm like, you can just tell me, it'll just be between us. She insists that she didn't. Right. For what that's worth, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but, but I think ultimately, you know, it's very hard to, to convey that in a, in a productive way that then doesn't also then damage the relationship between yeah. me and the teacher and the teacher, and my daughter, you know, and, uh, yeah, but I, I'm like, I, I, I'm, I kind of am somebody who knows something about what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, it's, it's just kind of an awkward position. No, it definitely is. Cause you're pretty much sort of the middle person in between trying to figure it out. So, I mean, maybe there is no way to figure it out. Maybe they could sort of pretty much agree to disagree that maybe they're both of, both of their interpretations were just what they were, and it's very hard to prove either way. I don't know. Well, I just wish that she hadn't treated her like yeah. that. I don't care if she believes it or not, but don't treat her like that in front of her friends. That's my, that's yeah. my issue with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that has you a whole know? bunch of cascading effects. Like, like you said, she could have handled it a different way, uh, still have empathized, but then said, you know, but I'm not going to. Uh, you know, I'm not going to let you uh, continue to partake. Like, as long as she showed some kind of empathy instead of calling her out in front of her. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah, definitely. And so, kind of, so since we obviously want to be mindful of your time, the last thing that I want to ask you is about your podcast. Like, how did you come up with the idea and how's it been going so far? In your well, interpretation. Yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 going great. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's a great excuse for me to to get in touch with a lot of really amazing people and say, hey, can I talk to you for an hour? <laughs> so, um, and also, if you, you can see the, you know, the studio behind me. So my husband is a is a voice actor. And so we have the studio here at our house. So we already had the setup for it. And he has all the, the technological know how to make that all happen. Uh -huh. And so, you know, we kind of did it originally as a way to um, kind of support the office and pr provide a resource for families, mm -hmm. um, but then also for educators as well. And it's kind of cool because it's turned into some opportunities. Um, like I mentioned, you know, the book that I've written, you know, was kind of wasn't directly related, but kind of semi-related. I'm having opportunities to go and do more professional development in a lot of different school districts, which is very cool. Mm -hmm. And so really kind of being able to go and, you know, um, um, preach my message to my people, you know, and, and amplify that voice of, you know, neurodiversity and strengths-based, uh, you know, approach for, for helping kids who, who are just sometimes a little bit different. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And what's, uh, go ahead. You were probably going to ask it too. Yeah. Oh, what's the name of your book? And, the, and the release date. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll be released. It's going to be like fall of 2020. Gotcha. So we're still in the process here, but it's been a, it's been a long process. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, when I when I turned in the first draft back in June of like close to 90,000 words, it was like, wow, I just did that. That was, <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of cool for, for my uh, scattered brain. Um, but the book is going to be called, I actually just got the email earlier this week about the official title. Mm -hmm. So like I said, it's through Free Spirit Publishing, and it is going to be called teaching twice exceptional learners in today's classroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, um, like I said, in about a year, it'll be available. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. Now we've just got all of the editing stuff to do over the next couple of months. And then it'll be kind of all downhill from there. Oh, cool. And maybe we can have you back on to help you do some promotional work for it. Yeah, absolutely. I would love that. I would right. love that. Yeah. 
And actually, I have a question. So this one is kind of borrowed from a question you asked Brendan Mahan at the end of your podcast. Mm. But yeah, uh, I wanted to ask, is there any, this is almost verbatim what you asked him, <laughs> is there any topic you feel like uh, parents and educators, if they knew one th- one particular thing, what would it be that you'd want to kind of relate to them that you think would be most helpful? That is a good question. Yeah. Yeah. I think more than anything, recognizing that behavior is communication. Mm -hmm. And if you have a child who is doing something or not doing something that seems like it is a discipline issue, you need to look further because there is rarely a situation that a child is misbehaving just for the sake of misbehaving. And they need some sort of support. Um, Ross Green has the quote, and I and I love it, and I repeat it all the time. But children do well if they can, if they have the skills, they will do what what they need to do. Mm-hmm. And so you have to look at that from that framework. Like, what does this child need to succeed? And if we take it from that perspective and recognize that every child's learning is different, mm-hmm. we're going to be able to to help them achieve their potential. Yeah, and it's sort of like the, what I think you're also saying is that or my, what I'm taking away from it at least is that sort of misbehavior is in a sense then adaptive because sort of the purpose of it is for some constructive end. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, or, or, or just like, or just I'm uncomfortable and don't know what to do yeah. and I don't know how to fix it. Right. You know, it's, it's not even, uh, you know, I think sometimes people say, oh, well, they're, they're seeking attention. It's like, well, why are they seeking right, attention? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Maybe they just need reassurance. Maybe they need, you know, so, so let's give them attention. Why do we ignore somebody when they're attention seeking? Like <laughs> we should give them what they need yeah. and, um, you know, and help them find more con- constructive, productive ways to seek that attention. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we're all just, I, I think humans in general, we're all just seeking connection and, um, relationships and acceptance Mm -hmm. and we as, as, as therapists and as teachers and as parents, like we are on the front lines for our kids and we need to be able to give them that so that they do grow into happy and successful adults who can then do the same for their kids. Yeah. Oh, this was excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no, thank you. It was, it was great. All right, and uh, last thing is, where can we find you? All social media handles. Sure. Um, So you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at EmilyKM underscore LPC. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a couple of Facebook pages. So you can find Emily Kircher Morris on Facebook. I have have just a page that's just mine that I kind of put stuff on. But then we also have the Mind Matters podcast page on Facebook and on Instagram. You can find the Mind Matters podcast on Twitter, which is at Mind Matters pod. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming we can find your podcast wherever all, all podcasts are available. All the podcasts. Yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. yep. Apple, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever, wherever you want. Libsyn, everything. Yeah, pretty yeah, all of the things. If you can't find it, send a message to my husband and let him know that he's he's falling down on the job. No. <laughs> I'm we sure he's got it all covered. It. <laughs> all right. Well, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Have, have a great day. You, you too, too. All right, guys. All right. Well, there you go. That was an amazing episode. And guys, if you want to follow us as well, mm-hmm. follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, mm-hmm. and at Seize underscore Podcast on Twitter. And yeah, you could follow. You could find us anywhere. Podcasts are available now. Audio. Yeah, and be sure to please subscribe on YouTube. And if you guys can, please leave us a comment because we we pretty much read all of them, and we'll try as best as we can to respond to all of them too. Absolutely. And see you guys next time.